Hey church family, this is Tyler Birch, one of the ministers here at Anacortes Christian Church. I want to take a second and thank you for joining us today. We know that life is busy, and there's a lot of other things that we could be spending our time doing, so thank you. We hope that this podcast serves as a tool for you to grow closer with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. If you have questions about ACC, like who we are, where we're located, and other key information about this incredible body of believers, check out our website, anacortischristian.church. Enjoy the message. Uh, As I said, this is a little bit different kind of service, and kids, you're doing great, but... uh, we're going to keep you a little bit longer. Uh, one, one of the things about prayer is what I tend to do, you have the question, why would I pray? Why would you come to church on a Sunday? What, there's usually something we need. There's a, a desire. There's something we want. And that's what we bring. But what we're going to see and what we've seen over the last seven weeks is that prayer is really about getting to know God more. It's really about being in a relationship. And so what we want to do today is we're going to go through the Lord's Prayer completely. And there's actually in the back of your newsletter, there is an entire outline, kind of a condensed version of the last seven messages we've given as a devotional exercise. And we're kind of going to follow that somewhat loosely this morning. Uh, But that's for you to take and to, to do on your own time Give it some time. Go, you know, take an hour, turn on some mood music, or go up on Capsana or Mount Erie or something like that, and just spend some time going through that with God. I strongly recommend that you do that. That's for you. Um, but I want to open, I want to go ahead with and just start. I want to start with the first part of the Lord's Prayer. So would you please just bow your head, close your eyes, and pray with me. The first part of the prayer is, Our Father in Heaven. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Father, you are in heaven. I am not. You see the whole picture. My view is very limited. And I confess, Lord, that when I come to you, oftentimes my my will, my desire, my needs can be at the forefront, and I know you care about these things. But it's true that I don't see the whole picture. We don't see the whole picture the way you do. And you invite us into a perspective. You see all. And so that begs the question, if I could see my situation the bigger picture, the way you do, would I even be praying for the thing that I have come to pray for? Would I I still want that? Or would I see something greater? So God, with that, we kind of have to admit that we don't really fully know what to pray. We need you. We're helpless over our situation. We're helpless. We're, We're powerless to know how to pray. And I heard a great quote that said, prayer is... Helplessness admitted and handed over to God. And so, God, we're handing that over to you. We surrender that to you. We don't know what is best, and you do. And so we're going to give that to you today. But, Lord, we also are acknowledging that you invite us to pray our Father in heaven. It's not just some being out there that we don't know whether we can trust. This is one, the one who has paid it all to rescue us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. You've also called us to be adopted as your children, adopted into sonship, which in this case has nothing to do with gender, but is about being recipients of an heir, as an heir of your inheritance, which means that already we, what we can know is that your desire for your children ultimately, eternally, is to give us far more and far greater than even the thing we've come to ask for in the first place. That's who we're coming to. That's who we can trust our situation with. You're our Father. And finally, you have removed the veil that separated your presence from your people by the blood of Jesus, and you invite us to come boldly into your presence, and you long to just be with us. Ultimately, prayer is about knowing you more. So this morning, God, I pray that we would be with you in your presence, 
and we would sense you here, and that you would have your way among us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The next part of the prayer is, hallowed be your name. What's that mean? Our prayer is going to move into praise and adoration. That's what hallowed means. Hallow, to hallow something is to treat something as of ultimate value, ultimately desirable. And so this is where the Lord's Prayer goes next. Before it's our requests, before our confession, our sins, or anything like that, praise. Why? And I don't believe it's some mechanical formula, like God calls you into his presence, but before you do anything, you better get on your knees and grovel, otherwise he's going to be angry and he won't answer your prayers or something like that. I don't think that's the case. As C.S. Lewis put it, praise, adoration, hallowing something is a response. It's not something we initiate, it's something we respond with, okay? He wrote that Praise is the consummation or completion of the experience of joy. So you, some, you see something really awesome. Kids, it might be like, you know, a really awesome bike jump park or video game or a, an amazing sunset or something. And we go, wow, that stirs something inside of us and it creates an experience. And that experience is only complete when we express praise for it. And we're all longing to praise something. We're all always praising something. We're going after the next candidate. We're going after our heroes that we idolize on TV. We're going after the next source of entertainment. We are always looking for something to give adoration to and praise to. And those things end up shaping our lives as we go after them. And so this is what's important. Why do we come to God with praise as a response first? What are we responding to? Exodus 19, 4 through 6 says that God says, Though the whole cosmos is mine, everything I have made in all of creation, the waterfalls, the mountains, the galaxies, the stars, everything, he says, you are to me. My people are my most treasured possession. Okay. We hallow God because he first hallowed us. He chose us. He's, he values us. He selected us above everything else, which means, this is what this means. If God is the most valuable thing, and he says that his people, above everything else that he's made, are his most valuable possession then if I take something that is made, created, and I treat it as my ultimate thing, if it is ultimately valuable, then what I'm doing is I'm taking something that is less valuable than myself and bowing to it. I'm becoming less than it. I'm becoming subservient to it, and I'm going to be conformed by it, which means that when we don't praise God, ultimately, we demote ourselves. We demote our self-worth. I believe that the root issue with our identity crises, the root issue with our self-esteem issues, the root issue with our sense of self-worth, the problems, we might say it's a relationship problem. It might be a relationship problem, but it's not just a relationship problem. We might say it's a money issue. It might be partly a money issue, but it's not just a money issue. We might say it's an issue of success or failure and whether or not I'm good enough. And you might say, you know, that might have something to do with it, but ultimately at the core, that's the main thing. The main thing is an adoration issue. The main problem with our sense of value and worth is we adore the wrong things. Because if we adored the one who first hallowed us above all things, then our value, worth, being defined by that success or failure, money or relationship, can't touch our, self, our sense of self-worth because the ultimate authority is the one who has defined it. Does that make sense? This is why we start with praise to get our hearts in the right place and our perspective before God in the right place. So what I want to do is I want you to take 30 seconds, grab a pencil and paper, or just take this before God. I want you to meditate on what God has done in your life that is praiseworthy. I want you to meditate on the extreme, 
that he went through to claim you as his most treasured possession. I want you to focus on that for a moment. Write some things down. How has God blessed you? And then we're going to sing a song of praise. So go ahead and take some time to do that. Take about 30 seconds, a minute, and then our worship team is going to lead us in another song. All right, you can be seated again. I would like to get three volunteers who will agree to read a passage, a short one, a little verse. So if you've got a Bible or a phone with a Bible on it or something like that, uh, three people, raise your hands. Don't be shy. All right, we've got one here. And uh, let's see, what's that? Oh, Jay, all right, Jay Lewis. Uh, let's see, anyone else? Anthony, you want to read a verse? Okay, Anthony, you're going to look up Revelation 510. Okay, not yet, though. We're going, to do, we're going to have you guys read them in just a little bit. Okay. And the other two are Daniel 727. How about Jay Lewis? All right. And then Exodus 19, 4 through 6. All right, there you, there you go. Okay. And Tyler, you got that microphone? Great. We're going to use a microphone for that. So the next part is your kingdom come. Now, contrary to a lot of modern assumptions, when Jesus talks about his kingdom, he's not talking about a place you go after you die. Okay. When we pray your kingdom come, what are we talking about? Now, one of the things we preached on when we talked about this was a picture of the Sabbath commandments in Exodus um, 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And you can review those on your own. I won't talk too much about it except to say that the people were asked to take one day out of every week and release their dominion, release their autonomy over the world, over their lives, in, and turn that over and rest in God's dominion, God's rule, his seventh day creation rest over the world. So it's a, it's a day to recognize that God ultimately has control and I don't. Okay, I may think I do, but I need to pause and realize that it's all his. And so that's part of what that means. We, we had a little phrase, resting in God's rule, resulting in release. And I think that's like the feeling or the substance of the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven, because what we are doing is anticipating an ultimate day where everyone is resting in God's reign, his perfect rule over the world. But we're also a part of that picture Okay, it is enacted through his people. So the first scripture that I want to read is Exodus 19, 4 through 6. So that's uh, right here towards the front. Have we got that? That's okay. Exodus 19, 4 through 6? Yep. Mm -hmm. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. All right. You are to be a kingdom. A kingdom of what? A kingdom of priests. What does that mean? What's a priest? What does God have in mind there? Okay, Anthony, Revelation 5.10. Have you got it? Yeah. All right. Let me get it here. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. All right, they will reign on the earth. And so God's kingdom is composed of priestly representatives of God who are going to enact his rule and reign on the earth on his behalf. Gee, go ahead and read Daniel 7. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Yeah, this is what we're praying for when we pray your kingdom come. The day when power and the abuse of power and dominion over the world is extracted from the rulers and authorities, literal, physical, and spiritual, and entrusted to God's holy people who will govern and rule his creation rightly 
on his behalf so that all nations and peoples will worship and serve not the people who enact the rule, but God himself, who they represent. Okay, that's your kingdom come. That's a big picture. The question is, are we qualified for that? (laughs) Who's qualified to have that kind of dominion? What kind of degree do you need to have? What kind of wisdom, what kind of skills? And what's so interesting is that when Jesus showed up, he started announcing the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. And then he started releasing people. Remember the word release and forgive are the same word in the New Testament. He started releasing people of sins, and he started releasing people from physical illnesses and infirmities. And in Leviticus, you find a list of most of those same physical illnesses and infirmities that Jesus was healing, and that is a list of things that disqualify a person from serving as a priest. What's he doing? He's taking the unqualified. He's taking the outcasts of society, those who could never qualify to represent God in his kingdom, and he's qualifying them by his own power, by releasing them from sin, by releasing them from their physical ailments, and that's what Jesus does. So who's qualified? It's whoever he qualifies. It's not up to our lists. And that's why he gives a list in the book of Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 26, as a contrast of value kingdoms, kingdom value systems between the values of the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom. Okay? Blessed are those who hunger and those who weep, those who are rejected and excluded and persecuted. And there's the, the woes, which simply means like so sad for you who are already full today. Those who laugh and gloat now. Those who um, are, you know, have wealth and money and don't feel like they need anything. Those who are uh, seeking recognition and celebrity. Those are not the exact words, but those are the categories. What is it about these people that qualify or disqualify them from the kingdom of God? It's really the question of, do I have a broken and contrite heart? Can I be told that I need him? That's the question. What qualifies you to reign as a priestly representative in God's kingdom? Have you ever looked at your own life and say, well, I'm not talented like them, or I can't play music like these guys, or I can't speak, and I, or I don't know how to talk to people, and so you've kind of written this label across in your own heart, disqualified. What does Jesus qualify? Right? It's his work, not yours. It's his list, not your list. He says, unless you become like a little child, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And so Colossians 2.15 says that the cross make, it made a public spectacle of the powers and authorities, and I'll add, and their kingdoms and values. In other words, the question is, there are two kinds of values that we tend to go after. Which one do our lives conform to the most? And the message is that on the cross, the world was trying to shame the true king by exposing him naked and hanging him on a tree. But in doing so, they were actually exposing the shame. This is where the value systems of our world's kingdoms and powers end up. Brutally murdering an innocent person on a cross. This is what's underneath them all. And so there's a contrast of kingdoms, and we're praying your kingdom come, your dominion come. And the way God enacts his rule is slow and sometimes unnoticeable, like a little bit of leaven in a big barrel of dough, and you don't even see it happening, but pretty soon the whole thing is leavened. Or a small seed that is sown that one day becomes a beautiful tree that is a a shade and a shelter and a place for birds to rest in its branches and so on. In other words, the kingdom rule enacted through you may not look that impressive to you because it's usually the little things that slowly transform our communities and our world. That's why our vision statement is transforming lifeless spaces into life-giving places through the power of Jesus Christ. 
because that's the kingdom advancing. That's what we're praying for, and we're praying that we're going to be a part of it. So when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying for a renunciation of the kingdoms of this world and their value systems and the power they have over our own lives. And we're longing, we're longing for the day when his kingdom comes fully and envelops our entire world. And when we as his people can adequately serve and represent who God is as we care for his creation and his world rightly. And that's something we all want, right? That's what we're, that's what we're longing for. And so that's what we pray for. The next part is, Mark called it incursion. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because this is battle language. The word will means desire, or pleasure. If you think about it as a parent, most, if not all, of our battles as parents are a battle of wills, right? My desire, what I want, versus their desire, what they want. And so the question is, who's going to prevail? Psalm 135, verse 6 says, The Lord does whatever pleases him. That's his will, right? In the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Psalm 115, 2-3 says, Why do the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Okay, he enacts his will. Psalm 115, verse 16 says this, The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth... He has given to mankind. And so there's this sense, and there's this long debate about the sovereignty of God and predestination and to what extent is God's will being supremely enacted on the earth? What's my part in that? Uh, Obviously, we don't have time to get into all of that, but what we seem to have a sense of is that ultimately, God's will will prevail. But because he loves people in his In his love, he has granted us freedom to choose to act in accordance with his will or not. Somehow, he will use whatever we do to complete what he wants to complete. But it is possible, at least in some degree of thinking about it, to live outside of God's will for our lives, outside of his pleasure, outside of his desire for what he wants for us. And so we're asking, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's battle language. That's advance, Lord, in my own life and through me. Matthew 26, 39 is a picture where Jesus is struggling with his own desires. And he's about to go to the cross, sweating like great drops of blood. And he says, Father, if it's at all possible, then let this cup pass from me. But only if it's your will. At the end of the day, not my will, but yours be done. So when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're doing three things. It gives us three things. And this is from Mark, uh, because he preached on this section. It gives us incredible hope. No matter what happens, it is not outside of God's control and ability to bring redemption into any situation. It also gives an incredible challenge to surrender to God's will and allow his will to work over my entire life as I learn to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And three, your will be done gives an incredible new calling to be an agent of his will rather than my own. So Lord, your kingdom come. Your reign, your rule, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for that day. But today, we ask that you give us the ability to submit and surrender to your will for our lives so that that kingdom can become a reality in us. It's this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to sing another song. Give us this day our daily bread. This is where we get to the part where we get to ask. We get to petition. And so we can thank God because he actually does care about our desires and our needs. We can thank him for that. But why does this part come after we've walked through a perspective and we've given praise 
And we've expressed a longing for the big picture of his kingdom and his will coming on earth as it is in heaven and making that a priority. Why does this come after that? Tim Keller put it, is my aim ultimately that God would bend himself and conform to my will and desire? Or is my deepest prayer that he would bend my desires according to his will? When Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, the disciples have gone to get food and they come back and they say, you should eat something. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So for Jesus, God's will is a desire that's even greater than the desire for bread, for earthly desires, okay? Our needs and desires, they do stem from good things. They're even necessary to live. But when given an ultimate priority in our lives, they can be dangerous. You can be like Esau, trading appetite for birthright. Birthright for appetite, the other way around, right? We can sell ourselves short of God's will for our lives in exchange for temporary sustenance. And so what we're praying in a sense is, Lord, free us from the tyranny of our desires. Let us rest on you for our desires and put them in their proper perspective. I want to read Proverbs 30, and I want to do it as a call and response, not something we usually do here at ACC, but we're going to do it a couple times this morning. So Proverbs 30, verse 7, we'll start all together. Is it up there? All right, there we go. Here we go. Ready? Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or... I may become poor and steal and dishonor the name of my God. And so there's a conundrum here that the proverb writer is identifying that it's possible to have too much of what I want and lose confidence in my God. And it's possible to have too little and dishonor his name in my quest for my earthly desires. And that's a test. We're going to talk about a test later on. So how do you deal with, how do we align the priority of our needs and desires with regard to God's will. Well, first of all, we're invited to see the giver through the gift. Okay, and this is all a little bit of review, but James 1, 14 through 18 talks about how desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire leads to death, right, ultimately. But what's the answer? Is it all desire is bad? Is it to snub the things I want, to get rid of all the things I think I need and to to not have any desire? No. He says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. In other words, it's look through the things you want to see the source of all good things that you want. From whom it comes down undiluted, like you're drinking downstream. There is an ultimate Good. Let your desires turn your attention towards their source. Wow, God, you are so good because of the abundance I'm experiencing right now. It is a pointer to who you are. Because of the need and the lack that I feel and the hunger as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs for you. Because I I need water. Lord, it's it's like you. You quench my spiritual thirst like water quenches my thirst. You know, let it point to God. Two, acknowledge him as a true source of bread. Actually, first, let me just give a little prayer that I had inserted there, and I just looked over it. But, okay, Father, help me to see through my desires to their source. Let them paint a picture of who you are so that I might not live for bread alone, but instead turn to the source. Help me to make your will my ultimate desire and priority. Okay, the second one was acknowledge him as a source of bread. And I'll just pray. Father, ultimately, you are my source of bread. It is not my strength. It is not 
my ability to provide. It is not ultimately my wisdom or my talents. Help me to recognize that you ultimately are the source for life. And three, trust your father that he is a God of abundance and not scarcity. Do I live as though I can never know whether there will be enough? Excuse me. Do I, do I live as though I have to take for myself and hoard or stockpile? And, and does that affect the way that his abundance can flow through me into others? Okay, do I believe that our God is a God of abundance? And so we're going to do another call and response. And I've kind of altered Matthew 6, 25 to 34. But this is a follow-up to the Lord's Prayer as a commentary on this part. And so... Um, where it says, everyone, go ahead and and read what's said there. Verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And we are much more valuable than they. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? No, we can't. (laughs) And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, he will much more take care of us. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Let us not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We're going to go into a time of communion pretty soon. So if, um, if the ushers who are going to serve want to go ahead and head back to that. And as we do, the fourth point is investigate the substance of my desire. Genesis 3.19 says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, the, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. If bread represents our desires, there are a lot of desires that promise life. We go after bread for life. But in the end, it's all dust. Our desires don't deliver the, the life they promise, the life we all learn for. Yearn for. By contrast, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats from me will never hunger again. And he says, he offers himself to us freely. In John 6, 58, he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And this is after he just said something that really freaked a lot of people out. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have eternal life. But of course, he's speaking in symbolic terms. He's saying, I am the source. I am the life you're looking for. Look to the source, not to the bread, not to the substance of your desire, but to the source. And if you turn to me, I will give you life. And that came at an incredible cost of his own body and blood given for us on the cross so that we could have the life that he surrendered when he came and became mortal as one of us. And so we're going to take the bread and the cup now. The ushers are going to pass those out as a sign of receiving the bread, the cup, the bread that does lead to life. So come on down, guys.
So let's take the bread. Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took a cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you meet together in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together.
We're not done yet. And uh, I apologize if we go a little over today. There's a couple more sections, but they're not too long. Don't worry. But it's very important because we've talked about the kingdom. We've sung about it. We've aligned our priorities to look to his will and his kingdom before even our needs. But now we look at roadblocks. What are the things in me that inhibit that reality, that kingdom coming to fruition in my life? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Unforgiveness is a roadblock to Jesus' kingdom happening. The Greek word for forgive is most directly translated as release. So release us from our debts as we release those indebted to us. And then just following the Lord's Prayer in verse 14 of John 6, he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. To forgive is to release someone from debt. If you were here a couple weeks ago, this is review for you. But that might be financial debt. That might be emotional debt. That might be psychological debt. There's more than one kind of debt. Now, I want to clarify again. Forgiveness is never about being okay with someone's or your own sin. It's not excusing the actions that have caused a debt. Okay? It is rather a choice to release someone from the debt that is incurred by that sin. And all sin brings out a debt. We talked about a window. If I break your window and you say, it's okay, Mike, I forgive you, someone still has to pay for that broken window. So what you're saying to me is, I will absorb your debt, Mike. I'll pay for my own window, even though you owe me. I'll release you from that debt. All sin results in damage to God's perfect good creation that has to be repaired. That repair costs something. It costs effort. It costs blood. It costs time. It costs God. So who is going to fill? Who is going to repair that debt? Forgiveness is never free. Someone has to pay for the debt. So when we confess, forgive us our debts, first we must believe that our sin has in fact created a mountain of debt that must be paid. Psalm 51, David cries out to the Lord against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And so if we get a sense of how much God is willing to absorb the sin and the damage that we cause, and we experience that release, then to not believe in the forgiveness of debts, the release of debts, is to not be at home in an eternal kingdom that is defined by that very ethic, the release of debts. So consider the audacity of this prayer. To pray, forgive us our debts, is to ask our Father to absorb the cost of everything we've damaged in our sin. And yet he invites us to pray just that. Father, I have spurned your great love. I have trampled on your heart. And there is no way that I could ever pay back or repair all of the brokenness and damage I have inflicted upon your creation. And yet you invite me to pray that you cover it all. That you release me from all that I owe. So the question is, who is going to pay? Colossians 2, 13 and 14 say, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to a cross. So in Jesus' own flesh. He absorbs all of our evil and all of our debt. Releasing others is difficult because it requires us to absorb the damage that others have inflicted upon us. Forgiveness, again, does not excuse their actions, nor is it an attempt to control and manipulate those people who have hurt us or abused us. 
It can be neither. It is simply a decision to release them from the debt that their wrongdoing has incurred upon our lives. To not hold that financial, psychological, emotional, whatever it is, debt or grudge that we hold. And the question is, if someone has shattered more than just a few windows in your lives, do you have the ability, the capacity to pay for it? Do you have the ability to repair the damage? And the answer is, you might not. And that's why I believe this is supernatural. I believe that's why this part of the prayer comes after, give us today our daily bread. Because we need a supernatural infusion of resources from God to be able to cover the gaps and the debt than the hurt that has been caused by others in order to release people from that debt. If it's flowing into us, it can flow out and we can let go. We don't have those resources ourselves, and that's why we depend on him. Father, I may not have the financial, psychological, nor emotional resources to cover the debt that others have incurred against me, but I believe that this is supernatural, that you ask us to give us today our daily bread first, before forgive us our debts as we forgive others, perhaps because you know that the resources I need to release this debt cannot come just from within me. They have to flow from you. Fill me with your abundance so that I may release others from their debts just as you absorbed my debt in order to release me. And lastly, there's an act of surrender. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we talked at length about this because the language is a bit confusing. Mark spoke on this one last week. It can feel a little confusing because are we saying, lead us? Would God, would God lead us into temptation in the first place? And are we praying that we are never tempted? And the word temptation there is more often translated as a test, a trial, tribulation, in which we might be tempted. Jesus was tempted after he was hungry for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted to take matters into his own hands and turn the stones into bread and pursue his own appetites, take the shortcut, do it the easy way. He was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane to say, Lord, I'm out. But he said, if there's any way, but not my will, yours be done. That's a test. And scripture says, you will face tests. You're going to go out of this room and you are going to get hit with trials. You're going to get hit with things that test you. Can you really trust God? You're going to have opportunities to simply turn to your own desires and your own will. You're going to have opportunities to go along with what the culture says is okay and good in terms of how you should handle relationships, business, sexuality, finances, whatever it is. There are shortcuts, and you're going to be tempted to take shortcuts when things get hard. You're going to be tempted to deny God. Your faith is going to be put into question when your health fails you. When your eyes grow dim, it's going to be tempting in the midst of that test to say, how can this happen if there is a good God? How can I keep believing in a God when I'm experiencing this? Shouldn't this not be happening in my life? This week, we lost a member of our church suddenly and unexpectedly, Mary Vintage passed away, and her family is going through a hard time. So they're in the midst of a test. In the midst of that test, what's going to happen? They have an opportunity to turn to him. They also have an opportunity to, as Job's wife said to him, what are you doing? Curse God and die. You're going to walk out of here with a vision for the kingdom of God, working through our own roadblocks and unforgiveness, desiring his will and his presence in our lives, and something is going to test that. And in the midst of that test, we are tempted towards evil, tempted to deny, tempted to take the easy way and go by our own wisdom. And so we pray 
Lord, maybe a better way to say it might be in this context. Lord, in the midst of a test, lead me away from temptation towards evil. And this is a prayer we have to pray again and again, to come back to this place again and again, because it's so easy. So God, I just pray as we go today that you would bolster our faith, that you would give us the strength we need to stand in the midst of those trials and tribulations that will happen. Give us the resources we need to forgive, to not take the shortcut of unforgiveness. Give us the, re- the resources we need to not be tempted to sin when there's a test, but to stand for what we know is pleasing to you in your will. Give us the strength we need, Lord, not to doubt or to waver in our faith as we're wrestling with trials and health and difficulty and loss of loved ones. These things challenge us. Give us what we need to stand in the midst of those tests. And if you need any prayer today for a test that you are encountering, we'd love to pray with you in room 201 right across the stairway in the foyer there after the service. Father, thank you for this prayer. Teach us to pray more. Help us to join a prayer ministry like Linda's ministry. Help us to develop a life of prayer. Help us to be changed by prayer and to know you more in prayer. On our own strength, we're inadequate and we need you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song. Thanks again for joining us today. We want to take a second and remind you that we love you and God loves you and you always have a place here in Accordus Christian Church. Our services are at 8.15 a.m. and 10 a.m. every Sunday. We hope to see you soon.